According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as we pick up where we left off last week. And if we hit it hard enough, we might even finish this uh, episode here today. You'd be laughing at me five weeks from now when we're still in this episode. Episode 8, the appearance to the disciples with Thomas. John chapter 20, verses 26 through 31. Thomas was absent the first time. Don't know what he was doing that night, you know. No way to know. People, they've got reasons or whatever. They're doing something. They're not in Bible class. That's fine. Um, He was probably something important. I'm sure it was a football game or something going on. And uh, had something better than being in, in church. But then finally, after eight days, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands. Reach here your hand and put it into my side. And stop being unbelieving. And start being believing. These are the imperatives. One is negated, we call that a prohibition. One is uh, not negated, so there's the imperative there. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. The very beginnings of lordship salvation right there. No, I'm teasing. All right. So here's what we've got to cover. And then uh, the response that uh, Jesus had to him in verse 29, and then the editorial comment that is uh, inserted in verses 30 and 31. We'll have to address those as well. Inserted by the Holy Spirit through the authorship of the Apostle John. Uh, at the time of the writing of this gospel. Okay? And uh, I may ask you to take pen and, and jot your own notes in there uh, because of the ridiculous objections that some people make to, uh, to these verses. So we'll, uh, we'll fix that starting today. Before we do anything, though, we've got to start with a word of prayer. This gives each one of us the opportunity to humble ourselves, to quiet our hearts, to confess our sins, to be prepared for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word. We rejoice that You are the God of truth, that we are Your children, that You teach us uh, all things, even the deep things of God, Father. We thank You for Your Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who teaches us, who rebukes us, Your Spirit who empowers us, Your Spirit who provokes us. Father, we just thank You for that uh, ever-powerful ministry of Your Holy Spirit within each believer priest. We ask for that activity now to take place as, we, as uh, the Holy Spirit guides us into this message. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, last week, we uh, continued with the, uh, the last of point six, I think, the disciples' amazement as they remained faith-impaired, what it is that hinders your faith. What it, is, what it is that will then be a, uh, an influence that will hinder the choices you make. And uh, in their case, it was the joy and amazement uh, by which in response to the joy and amazement, they did not believe. 
and uh, looked at the issues of unbelief, the apostéo, the apostia. I still haven't fixed the slide where I got the wrong Strong's number here. I know you've told me about it twice. Uh, apostéo, apostia, oligopostia, and uh, that's the one that's not correct. And then uh, apistos, the different terms there for unbelief. And the recognition that in many cases, unbelief is not a problem for the unregenerate. Unbelief is more of a problem for the regenerate. That is, somebody who is saved can still have a hang-up with unbelief. And every time we choose to stop walking by faith and we go back to walking by the flesh again, or walking by sight, or operating under law, uh, we have abandoned the Holy Spirit and we're no longer walking by faith. At which point then, you can have a saved individual. You have a saved individual that you can call an unbeliever. An apostone, make it a, a nominative singular masculine uh, present active participle, right? An unbeliever. He's still saved. He has eternal life. He hasn't lost his salvation. But he is effectively, experientially, practically living out his unbelief as a, as a born-again unbeliever, okay? And some of this is awkward to talk about just because we're so used to the term believer talk is, is a synonym for somebody who's saved, Okay? And, I, and maybe I'll never overcome that in my lifetime um, because our form of teaching and our tradition of churches have always used believer and unbeliever as terms to represent saved and unsaved. Okay? But those are terms that we have adopted that may not be the best in their conflict with Scripture because we have places in the New Testament clearly where they are saved, they have eternal life, they're born again, they're going to go to heaven when they die. But they are not right now walking by faith. They are right now operating in unbelief. And here's Thomas operating in unbelief. And Jesus says, stop it. All right? Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And that right there is an imperative, is a, is a, a pair of commands, a do not and a do, that are assigned to a believer. Thomas is saved. All right, unless you want to try to prove to me today that he's not yet saved, this is the moment of his salvation, not so. I can prove to you through the scriptures that Judas Iscariot was the only unbeliever among the twelve. All right, so this is uh, what we dealt with last week. As we moved on to point seven then, Thomas Didymus was absent and required an additional week before he would observe the Lord on Monday, April 13th, 33 AD. All right, Monday the 13th. 33 A.D. And to realize, uh, I was reading, uh, somebody gave me a copy of uh, Bill O'Reilly's Killing Jesus, and his, uh, his approach was with a 30 A.D. crucifixion date, so his dates are all wrong. But anyway, good book, just problematic in a couple areas. Monday, April 13, 33 A.D. All right, we don't know who his twin was, why he was called twin. Um, the Bible doesn't say. Bible doesn't say who his twin was or is, if he was even alive at this point of time, if he was one of the other disciples, probably wasn't, who knows. Uh, I do know, though, that his tw- he was not Jesus' twin, okay? That's a terrible, terrible thing to think about. The idea that Jesus had a twin would, uh, you know, does that mean Thomas also was uh, sinless? Was Thomas also fathered? Uh, was he a God-man in some way? How, how does that work? How, if Jesus had a twin and the pre-existent spirit uh, soul of Jesus Christ entered into the body that, Jesus, that God prepared for him, then where did the soul come from for, uh, for Thomas? All right. Was that me popping the microphone? Okay. Anyway, try not to do that again. 
so we don't know who Thomas's twin is. We're going to relax about it uh, as far as that goes. Uh, secondly, though, here's the main impact when we talk about doubting Thomas. Uh, I'd like to rename doubting Thomas, choosing not to believe Thomas, all right? Because Thomas wasn't doubting. Thomas was choosing not to believe. So let's look at his defiance again in verse 25, because I think this is powerful. Um, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. The other disciples were, over time, continuously saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, he kept on saying to them, probably time and time again, every time another disciple brought it up. Now, you know, I can imagine all 11 of them were pretty excited, right? They were probably all, oh, Thomas, you missed it. You should have been there. And every time he encountered another one of these guys, they'd say, oh, you missed it. And every time this was his defiance. Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the imprint, the tupas, the uh, imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side. So there's three conditions. Unless, unless, unless. In other words, God better measure up to my expectations. And until he does, notice the statement in verse 25, I will not believe. I will not believe. And this is a future active indicative. I will not believe believe not that i cannot not that i cannot i will not and uh and there it is i mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago i i'm disappointed in the uh translation there in luke where it says that they could not believe for their joy and amazement okay it's not an inability there's nothing in that verse that talks about their dunamis or their power or their ability it's not that they could not believe it's that they did not believe because of their joy and their amazement all right so uh, unbelief is a choice. Not believing is a choice. And it is a choice in this instance by someone who places God under their circumstantial requirements for believing. We are not sovereign. We don't call the shots. We don't tell God what the conditions need to be. And if God uh, lines up with our expectations, then we'll believe. And if God does not line up with their expectations, well then, too bad for God, I'm not going to believe. All right, As if God answers to my demands for, uh, for what He must do before I will believe. Okay, And uh, just think about how outrageous that is, how blasphemous, how um, insane. You know, it's a grace gift. It's freely extended. And for him to make faith the criteria for it to be freely accepted, well, that's his prerogative to do so. He's the one giving the gift. He's the one that's, that's making the provision to even provide for the gift in the first place. He's the one that uh, is the sovereign of the universe. And for me to say, well, I'll accept your gift, but only on these terms, the gift receiver can't in any respect. I, I can't think of a venue when a gift receiver can... Um, establish the criteria for which he will be willing to accept your grace <laughs> okay anyway it seems to violate the whole aspect of grace freely given and freely received now u me pistuso is the expression here u me pistuso pistuso uh is just like pistuo only has the s shoved in there okay pistuo is the verb to believe and pistuso is the future Future active indicative. 
he will not believe. And there's two negations in front of it, u and may, the double negative. Remember in English, a double negative cancels out and becomes a positive. Uh, in Greek, a double negative intensifies itself and it becomes absolutely certain. I absolutely will not believe. No way, no how. I will not believe. So, uh, is this our position then? Are we, uh, are we able to call the shots? Not at all. Not at all. This is part of God's wisdom, part of God's grace, part of, by the way, what God does in his foreknowledge, what he does in his plan to maintain his sovereignty as well as to extend our, our volition. All right. This is how God himself maintains sovereignty over the circumstances, knowing what the response is going to be, knowing what the choices are going to be. See, this is how God himself can reconcile sovereignty and free will. We struggle with it. Humans struggle with it. Calvinists and Arminians struggle with it. All right? They find different solutions. The Calvinist basically solves it by saying there is no free will. God's totally sovereign. The Arminian uh, solves it by saying, no, we have free will, and God somehow limits his sovereignty based upon what we choose to do. Okay? Both are wrong. Because God doesn't limit his sovereignty, ever. God has absolute, maximum, eternal, unchanging, non-compromising sovereignty at all times. And yet, he extends to us our volition at all times, and we reap what we sow. That's the law of sowing and reaping. So how does God then reconcile his sovereignty with the volition he created us with? Okay? He does so through this very exact thing we're talking about today, by the sovereign control of circumstances. Because God in his knowledge knows what our response is going to be in every circumstance. He knows, for example, that if the the Capernaum miracles were done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. So why did God not send Capernaum miracles to Sodom? Did he not want them to repent? Okay. What was his plan for Sodom? What was his plan for Gomorrah? What was his plan for all those cities on the plain? And, and he did not send the Capernaum miracles. Could have. He could have had Abraham do those miracles or Lot do those miracles or what have you. He didn't. Instead, he sent two angels to go in there and get Lot and his family out. And then he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, you and I aren't in a position to understand every ramification of that. Okay, and there's Bible skeptics. I've I've spoken to some of these folks. Okay, they um, and they're on the <laughs> the uh, sodomite side of things. Okay, and so they've they've got a vested interest in trying to uh, accuse God of being unfair. Okay, God's not unfair. And how many did he kill? How many died in that? And we don't know what well, what the population was in that. But God knows. God has all this worked out. And however many died, it's a terrible thing, of course. Um, But was he unfair towards them? Not at all. God's never unfair. And think about now how many more, how many millions through these thousands of years now have been warned by the example of Sodom and Gomorrah so that they have been fearful of defying the will of God. Okay? We don't know. Only God can know. Only God can know. In any event, God did not choose to send uh, Capernaum miracles to Sodom. And so Sodom was destroyed. Sodom was destroyed because they didn't repent. Okay, are we clear on that? Does that, this make sense? 
We are accountable for the conditions he puts us in. And we reap what we sow. And so if we make negative volition decisions and we come under divine discipline, that's what it is. And we can't whine and say, oh, well, if you would have put us under other conditions, we would have passed that test. That's irrelevant. And we don't know that anyway. All we know is these are the conditions he put us in and these are the bad choices we made and these are the consequences we're, we're taken. That's why the men of Sodom will rise and condemn the generation Jesus was talking about there and um, not because they're complaining about their treatment but because they are going to give the testimony to the faithfulness of God. Absolutely righteous and just under the conditions they were placed in. All right. Anyway, that's, I, that may be, I don't know, maybe bore you to tears, but I think it's vital. I think it's absolutely vital to understand God's sovereignty and man's volition and not fall into the, either the Calvinist or uh, Arminian um, traps. Now, Jesus graciously provides Thomas's demands, okay? And I find that remarkable. He shows up and says, all right, Thomas, here I am. Touch me. Here's my hands. Here's my side. And I say graciously provides. I, we don't know the tone of voice here. He said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. You know, was, it, was there an edge to his tone? Maybe it was not quite as gracious as I put on the slide. I, I think it was gracious. Graciously provides for the requirements, but then he immediately follows it up with an order. Okay? All right. Touch me now. And stop being unbelieving. Ordering him. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Kind of a put up or shut up kind of a thing. Saying, all right, Thomas, enough of that. You've had eight days of stupidity. Okay? Today you're going to start walking by faith. So, orders Thomas to change his choice from unbelieving to believing. And I find that exciting. I think it's neat. The, um, uh, if, if, if I ever find myself in a place where I'm putting conditions on God saying, well, you know, I'll do this, but first I need that. Or I want to do this, or but first, but, but, but. And, you know, what am I doing? Am I putting God, am I laying out a Gideon fleece? And God provided in that Gideon circumstance, but then he held Gideon accountable and put Gideon to work. Sometimes I wonder about that Gideon chapter. All right. The final thing now, point eight. The last of the points we've got to deal with. Thomas's response my Lord and my God. Thomas's response sparks a final comment by Jesus. The last thing he says on this episode. A final comment by Jesus and an amazing editorial comment by John. I take verses 30 and 31 as an editorial comment inserted at the time of the composition of this epistle. There's no other way you can take it. Thomas's response sparks a final comment by Jesus and an amazing editorial comment by John. And we would do well to understand this. Now, uh, first of all, let's be clear. This is not when Thomas gets saved. Okay? Uh, this event is not the occasion for Thomas to receive eternal life. Thomas is a believer prior to this chapter. Thomas has eternal life prior to this chapter. He's been a believer for a long time. And I think John 13 proves that. That the only unbeliever among the twelve is Judas. His subjection to the Lord. What's happening here though? 
His subjection to the Lord is a turning point in his spiritual life when he makes ministry his number one priority. His subjection to the Lord. This is He's putting his hand to the plow and not looking back. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is worthy of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said. His subjection to the Lord. My Lord and my God. I expect he probably, I don't know. We don't know. This is the last we see Thomas. And, well, we see him on Pentecost and some things. But, um, you know, did he ever have doubting moments later in his career? Not so far as we know. I mean, everybody does, but normal human stuff. But, you know, significant events like this where he's willfully defiant against the Lord, I doubt he ever had a moment like this ever again. Okay? I don't know. His subjection to the Lord is a turning point in a spiritual life. I think, you know, we have events like this in our, in our lives. I think believers can point to a moment. For Jesus, it was age 12. He's in the temple and he says, I must be about my father's business, right? I think believers come to a point where they realize God has a hold on you. You, know, you, just, you come to a point in your growth. And, and, and Paul spoke of this with, with Timothy. He says, you made the good confession in the presence of witnesses. I think uh, you, you reach a point in your growth. So I, I see this in the scriptures. I see this in, in our experience. I see this with Thomas here, my Lord and my God. And you realize, all right. Or in the, where Paul says the time past is sufficient. <laughs> okay? If we're done with that now. Let's reach forward. Let's reach forward. Um, if you're not familiar, John 13, I, I think in the foot washing episode, when uh, Peter had all his confusion and first of all tried to skip the whole process and then he wanted the bath and Jesus says, no, if you've bathed, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you. And then specifically, the one that's highlighted, he knew the one who was betraying him and it's for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Okay? To me, this is absolute conclusive proof that Judas Iscariot was the only, one and only, unbeliever among the twelve. The other eleven uh, were, and plus Matthias, I expect Matthias was there that night, the other eleven were believers during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. So, the event here where uh, choosing not to believe Thomas finally uh, comes face to face with the resurrected Savior uh, it's not when he gets saved. It's not when he receives eternal life. This is, uh, this is when he subjects himself to the Lord, my Lord and my God. Also, now secondly, um, what does Jesus say to him? Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. This is now eight days since he's been resurrected. Eleven days since he's been crucified. And there are people who have not yet seen him. If you think about it, there were very few who did. I mean, that 500 on one occasion, which I don't think has happened within these eight days, it's going to happen when they go up to the mountain and he gives them the Great Commission. Um, but that 500 who have seen him at one time, even that's not a huge number compared to the thousands that were flocking after him to be fed and compared to the, the, the population of Jerusalem, compared to you know, those that have you know, not seen him. It's a bare handful that have, received, that have seen him and beheld him. 
And yet notice, there are those who have believed. There are those who have trusted in the fact of His resurrection. Why did they trust in the fact of His resurrection? Because before He died, He said He would. And then after He was raised, there were eyewitnesses who said He did. And these believers trusted in what He said He would do and what others said that He did. And they didn't see it for themselves, but they trusted. They trusted without seeing. Didn't need to see with their own eyes. And so here's the, the, the comment from the Lord, and I think it's true. Physical sight is inferior to spiritual sight. It is more blessed to not see. It is more blessed to not see with your earthly eyes so that you can see with your spiritual eyes. He says, blessed or happy are they who did not see and yet believed. There's an advantage there. There's a great advantage there. Physical sight is inferior to spiritual sight. You know, truth be told, your physical sight can trick you, right? There's a lot of things you can look at, and there's, you know, optical illusions. Your eyes see something, and what? Did I I just see that? Really? And I've seen stuff, I don't even know what I saw, okay? And evidently, uh, you know, last Thursday, you all saw stuff I didn't see. That's fine, okay? Good thing we're not dependent on physical sight. Spiritual sight. Look at 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. I love this text. Take a look at this, and Lewis, you can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> we talk about the, um, the work of God and His mercy who has caused us to be born again to a living hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it says, um, in this you greatly rejoice, verse 6. Here we are waiting for glory. And uh, we're saved and yet we're waiting for uh, either to be called home for heaven and uh, through rapture or physical death. And it says in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and it is, you have been distressed by various trials so that the proof of your faith, the exhibition of it, the demonstration of it, the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by a fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right, that's, that's the nature of it. Don't complain about the tough things in the Christian walk. That's what we're designed to do. And though you have not seen Him, here's the key, and though you have not seen Him, Peter's an eyewitness, of course, but his audience, the folks that he's writing to, this is years after. This is, you know, this is in the 60s, okay? A.D., 30 years more after after the uh, resurrection. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Now, there's an advantage here to not having seen. And it produces this joy inexpressible. 
this this ineffable joy, this uh, hard to comprehend joy, right? In fact, it's a joy that's hard to put into words because the natural mind doesn't understand it. You you start describing the joy you have in your heart, and the unbeliever looks at you like you're from Mars or something. You know, they don't have the capacity to understand what provides you joy because they don't have the faith capacity that you have as you perceive these things. <clears throat> and then notice, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is not receiving eternal life, becoming a going from unbeliever to believer salvation. This is the, the stage two we talk about, right? This is phase two. This is the uh, outcome of uh, your faith, walking by sight, Loving the Lord, um, I mean, walking by faith, loving the Lord, uh, joyful in His uh, in His uh, provision, and then you have the uh, salvation of your souls from the power of sin on a daily basis, resisting the temptations. All right. Remember the three senses of salvation that we were talking about. So. <clears throat> I find this neat. Uh, what is spiritual sight? What is spiritual sight? Here's a study for you. Spiritual sight is the perception function of faith, hope, and love. Spiritual sight is the perception function of faith, hope, and love. The perception function. How do we perceive what we perceive? You know, what are our senses? Well, we've got the earthly senses, of course. Things that I see, things that I hear, things that I smell, things that I taste, things that I feel. <clears throat> and, and those are suitable for earthly stuff, right? I mean, they, they, they have their place. We're not knocking it. But things in the spiritual realm have to be perceived. Now, let me ask you, um, just as there's a difference, right, between sight and smell and sight and hearing and taste, and right? I mean, do <clears throat> you just want to look at that cheeseburger or do you want to taste it? Okay? You know, I mean, first you can smell it, right? And then you want to taste it. I mean, the senses are suitable in that way as they're designed for different applications. I think likewise, too, faith, hope, and love are suitable in their way for what we perceive spiritually. And in some cases, faith is going to be the best mechanism. It's probably the predominant mechanism. It's certainly the first mechanism that we come to. It's the first that we train. But it may not be the only mechanism by which we perceive what we perceive spiritually. What we perceive spiritually. Okay? So, Again, we're talking about perception by which we observe stuff. All right. So 2 Corinthians 5, 7, the contrast between faith and sight. It's probably the easiest of these to look at. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Boy, sticky pages this morning. All right. <clears throat> you got the whole contrast here between earthly life and going to heaven and what happens when we die. And if this tent is torn down, then something better is waiting for us when we get there. 
And so it says, therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we're at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. So faith is a means of perception. Faith allows us to perceive. Faith allows us to look around. Faith allows us to have a perspective, right? Allows us to have a perspective that shapes how we see things. It it shapes our thinking with respect to life and death. It shapes our attitudes with respect to this life and the next. So it's a perception function. And in that perception, um, our attitudes then are shaped. Okay, I think it's it's a wonderful blessing. And faith is a facet that does that. But it's not the only facet. I believe hope is also a facet. Hope is a facet that shapes how we perceive things. And uh, for this, we have Romans 8.24. Again, it's contrasted with sight. <clears throat> Creation was subjected to futility, and yet it has a destiny, it has a promise, it will be set free. Verse 22 says, We know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now notice, for in hope we have been saved. The stress here is not faith, but hope. In hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For he who hopes for what for who hopes for what he already sees. Okay, so the contrast of faith and sight we have uh, here. Uh, we have in Second Corinthians five. We have in Hebrews eleven. We have in other passages. There's several passages that will contrast faith with sight. Faith is the assurance of things hope uh, hope for, the assurance of things not seen. Right, but here is hope in Romans eight twenty four. In hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Eagerly. What's that? Attitude. So hope is a perception that shapes uh, how we perceive things. It shapes our attitude. It's a part of our spiritual sight perception. And then there's a love perception. And we were just there. 1 Peter 1.8 Though you do not see Him, you love Him. 1 Peter 1.8 We were just there. You think I could quote it without turning back to there again? <clears throat> Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. You understand that contrast? You don't see Him, but you love Him. And through that love perception now, Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, there's faith, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So here's our spiritual sight. We're operating with faith, we're operating with hope, we're operating with love. And they have perception functions as well as abiding functions. Faith, hope, and love also have abiding functions. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Faith, hope, and love have perception functions. Faith, hope, and love have abiding functions. As we abide in faith, we will perceive by faith. As we abide in hope, we will perceive by hope. As we abide in love, we will perceive with love. Does love shape how you think? Does love shape how you look at things? 
Yeah, because if you're minus love, you're going to look at something and you have one reaction. You're going to have one attitude. But love covers a multitude of sins. Okay? That's why we're supposed to love one another. If you're minus love and you look at a thing, you're going to have an entirely different... You're going to have a reaction instead of a response. And it's not going to be Christ-like. But if you're abiding in love and you're looking at something, then love is going to see something entirely different. All right. So we've got the perception functions. We've got the abiding functions. Finally, then, the editorial comment. Let's look at verses 30 and 31 in John 20. I like faith, hope, and love. Of course, the greatest of these is love. This is why, by the way, I don't think faith can be a temporary spiritual gift. Somebody, one of the pastors here for the conference, uh, was looking at my list of uh, 20 and 9 temporary and 11 permanent. And uh, his list was 10 and 10. And, uh, and well, why is faith uh, a permanent gift? Because faith, uh, in, in the pl- and I agreed with what he had to say. And I told him, I said, yeah, I understand what you're saying. And that's a weakness of my position. <clears throat> that when the gift, the spiritual gift of faith is mentioned in that verse where faith occurs, it is mentioned surrounded by additional temporary gifts. All right. And so that's a weakness in my view. But I think a strength of my view is that when I delineate a temporary gift, I have a verse that shows why that gift is temporary. And I can't find a verse to show me why the spiritual gift of faith would be a temporary gift, why it would be a foundational gift, why it would be associated with the apostles and prophets, why it would be a sign of of an apostle. Um, Quite the opposite. I find that faith abides, just like love abides, just like hope abides. I find it that it's designed to be enduring for the entirety of the church age in any event. I do believe that faith is a permanent gift, and I believe we've got believers in this congregation with a gift of faith, and I'm thankful for them. All right. John 20, then, verses 30 and 31. Here's the editorial comment. Now, I say the Apostle John. No, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle John. This is point C in the outline, and we'll have a couple of subpoints here, but this is the last really thing we say in this episode. Point C, the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle John, inserts an editorial comment to the canon of Scripture. That he inserts an editorial comment to the canon of Scripture at this point in the resurrection narrative. All right, so therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. All right? Believing you may have life in his name. So here's the comment. And there is so much in these two verses. Okay? But here we have some statements, and I think it's good that we can identify with them. All right, there were many of those signs Jesus performed in the presence of his disciples. But notice, the, the purpose clause here deals with belief, okay? These have been written so that, purpose clause, you may believe. Maybe you will, maybe you won't, okay? But the purpose is that maybe you will. The purpose is, is that it's provided for you to either believe or not believe. But based on these, 
They're laid out there so that you will. Okay? And this comes as the, as the editorial comment in response to Jesus' statement about believing, about do not be unbelieving, but believing. And uh, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see yet believed. In other words, there's going to be some folks who are going to be reading this gospel. And they didn't see the resurrected Christ. They, didn't, they weren't even alive at that time. But they're reading this gospel. They're reading this gospel. And the purpose for this gospel is evangelistic. All right. The uh, gospel of John is not intended to be an exhaustive journal of every miracle Jesus ever performed. It's not its purpose. It doesn't tell all that many, really. Not compared to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They had a lot more miracles than John had. Um, you want a fun exercise? Read the Gospel of John this week and write down every miracle. <clears throat> All right? And include the resurrection among, the <clears throat> among that list. <clears throat> the resurrection is the final of the miracles. <clears throat> when it says many other signs, you have to include the sign in this chapter, the sign of the resurrection. Okay? <clears throat> so sometimes that gets overlooked. Uh, but there were many other signs Jesus also performed which are not written in this book. Okay, Why not? Well, it's not why John wrote this book. This book was written for a different purpose. The Gospel of John is not intended to be an exhaustive journal of every miracle Jesus ever performed. And it really is set apart from the synoptics, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we call the synoptic Gospels. Many more miracles in those Gospels. And even they weren't designed to be exhaustive journals of every miracle Jesus performed. They just contained a whole lot more than John did. We believe that John actually was written last, written after the synoptics were completed, probably decades after, depending on, of course, there's debates and arguments about how early the other ones were written. All right. Uh, we're going to have a kind of a restatement of this at the end of chapter 21. Look what happens here at the end of 21. Verse 24 says, uh, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Okay? The Apostle John never names himself in his own epistle. He's always the other disciple, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's, he never names himself, but we know because of the synoptics, in the parallels that we know that this is John, the son of thunder. Who was testifying to these things and wrote these things. Now when did he write these things? Did he write these things in 33 AD? Did he write these things, uh, you know, uh, the, the year that, that Jesus rose? No. In fact, it wasn't even within a decade. It wasn't probably within 50 years possibly within 50 years, if he wrote it during the 80s. Okay, That's kind of a traditional date, within the 80s. So he's writing something 50 years later. you got Matthew written in the 40s, Mark probably in the 40s and 50s, Luke written in the, in the early 60s. And those Gospels around for the longest of times, and all those stories, already well known. And when Luke wrote his, he said, there's a ton of other stories out there too. All of these things were known. Everybody knows Jesus walked on water. Everybody knows Jesus rose from the dead. Everybody knows all these things. 
So why is John writing a fourth gospel? Okay. We've got a purpose clause for this fourth gospel. It's not intended to be an exhaustive journal uh, of every miracle Jesus ever performed. What is it intended to be? These have been written. All right. These specific signs. And uh, in the order they're written, and in the, in the book they're written, these have been written. The Gospel of John is intended to be an effective journal of specific signs Jesus performed. Not an exhaustive journal, but an effective journal. The Gospel of John is intended to be an effective journal of specific signs Jesus performed. Effective for the reader without life. To believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and receive eternal life. In other words, it's a gospel book. It is evangelistic. The Gospel of John is intended to be an effective journal of specific signs Jesus performed. Effective for the reader. An unbelieving reader. An unsaved reader. Somebody without uh, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Somebody that is, it's the natural mind, okay? Now, some people hate this or reject this or debate this or want to argue this because of 1 Corinthians 2, right? 1 Corinthians 3, the natural mind, the spiritual mind, okay? But this verse says, and I know what Corinthians says, I taught Corinthians, all right? That the unbeliever cannot understand doctrine, the things of God. The Holy Spirit takes us into the deep things of God, but the unbeliever looks at doctrine and says, that's just crazy. It's foolishness to him. But there's something different about gospel information, about gospel um, messages, gospel material. Gospel material is different than doctrinal material for believers. I think if you have that kind of a basis, then you're, you're cool with this, you're fine with this. Gospel information is not like doctrinal information for the believer. I agree. Doctrinal information for the believer, try throwing that to an unbeliever as pearls before a swine. But the gospel is something else. So, uh, these have been written so that you may believe. So, uh, again, the emphasis is which are not written in this book. So, if you're an unbeliever picking up this book and reading these things, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. The Gospel of John is evangelistic. In fact, it's the only evangelistic book of the 66 books of the canon of Scripture. Okay? I think you can probably get saved reading other books too. But... You know, could somebody pick up Isaiah and get saved? I'm not going to say that it couldn't happen. But those books don't have a purpose statement saying, I wrote this book so that you can read it and believe in Christ for eternal life. There is no other book of the Bible that says, this book is written so that you can read it and believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. This is the only book with a purpose clause, making the statement that it was written for evangelistic endeavors. That's why I'm thankful we have the, the Gospels out there that we have on the table. Take them. Make use of them. Hand them out. The Living Water booklets I'm talking about. The best tract in the universe is the Gospel of John. <laughs> okay? Add it to them. Say, yeah, when you're done reading that, let me know. I'll 
I've got some questions for you. Okay? So there it is. Now, we've got just a few minutes remaining. Um, the reason why I really want to stress this, I want to make sure that we're good on this, okay, <clears throat> is because uh, there's a bit of controversy in different churches and different places for different reasons, but there's a bit of controversy that actually denies verse 31 for what it says and feels that John is not an appropriate gospel. And uh, they, they will tell you face-to-face, and they've put it in their journals, they've put it in their newsletters, they've put it in their books, that John is, a, uh, is an inappropriate um, gospel book. That the, the gospels were before Pentecost, and that uh, it might be evangelistic for believers before the church age, but for believers in the church age, uh, the, the better gospel is 1 Corinthians 15. And that you want to, you want to, if you're not preaching, Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. If you're not preaching 1 Corinthians 15, then you're not preaching the church age gospel. That Paul's gospel, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, that's what we preach. And that John should not be preached in the church age for the gospel. Okay? And they will tell you that, and they're wrong. <laughs> okay, they're wrong. They're they're wrong five different kinds of ways. They're wrong. Okay, now and I love First Corinthians fifteen. Okay, I've taught First Corinthians fifteen. It's a great gospel message. If you want to use it, use it. But Paul did not close First Corinthians by saying, "This book was written so that you can read it and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name." 1 Corinthians was not written with a purpose clause saying this book is designed to be evangelistic. John was written saying that it was designed to be evangelistic. And when they say, well, yeah, but it was, John was before the church age. John was before Pentecost. Stop them and say, no. The Gospel of John describes events that preceded Pentecost, yes. But it was written after Pentecost. And it was written after 1 Corinthians 15. It was written after Paul was dead. Has to have been. I mean, maybe it wasn't, but I, th- I don't think that's, I mean, we can debate it, but you can't debate that it was written after Pentecost. That's not debatable. None of the New Testament was written before Pentecost. So, the uh, when they tell you John can't be evangelistic for the church age, they say, no, no, John, that's, that was in the Gospels. That was for believers in, in the age of Israel. That was for believers before Pentecost. You can't use John. You can't use John as an evangelism tool after Pentecost. You have to use 1 Corinthians 15. And if you don't use 1 Corinthians 15, you're not preaching the Gospel. They will tell you that. It's in their literature. It's in their newsletters. It's in their books. Okay? And they are not correct. And what I try to do, word of balance here, <laughs> I try to um, demonstrate some grace and some love towards some folks here in the body of Christ. Okay? And if I find out that you used 1 Corinthians 15 to lead someone to Christ, praise the Lord. If I find out that you used John to lead someone to Christ, praise the Lord. Use the Romans road to lead someone to Christ, hey, praise the Lord. 
Okay? Uh, if somebody used the pathetically awful, terrible uh, Revelation chapter 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> okay? Oh, man. Well, sorry for you, but praise the Lord if that guy got saved. Okay? We'll try to sort out some things afterwards on that, but, you know, some terrible things. There have been some crummy gospels out there that folks have gotten saved. Okay? But to, to, to stand on this self-righteous thing where 1 Corinthians 15 is the only gospel, I've got a problem with that. And I want to I step back a little bit and try to be more gracious towards one another. I'm, I'm glad you're using 1 Corinthians 15. I like the passage. But there are other places you can preach the gospel from. Okay? How about preaching it out of Isaiah? Take them to a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Okay? Take them to Isaiah 7. Take them to Isaiah 9. Take them to Isaiah 11. Take them to Isaiah 53. Okay? Give them a powerful gospel teaching them the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus. And you never even got to the New Testament. Okay? There is a purpose clause for the Gospel of John and it's found right here in John 20, 31. These have been written. And so now, here's where you're going to put it in your Bibles. Get your pens out. You don't have to do this if you want to. But These have been written after the day of Pentecost, in the church age. 50 years after the church age began. The Gospel of John was written in the church age, after 1 Corinthians was written. Okay? So that you, unbeliever, unsaved person in the church age, who never knew Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry, can read about what He did and why. And that reading, the persuasion of what you read, will lead you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay? There's a whole lot more that goes into that as well from chapter 11 and the one who comes into the world and all the things here related to what does it mean that He is the Christ, the Son of God? There's a whole realm of doctrine there, but you get that in this book. You get that here. He is the bread of heaven. He is the light of the world. He is the resurrection and the life. He is all of the signs, all of the I am messages, the whole gospel of John can persuade an unbeliever that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And believing in Him, you may have eternal life in His name. Zoe in His name. So, the gospel of John is the only book of the Bible whose stated purpose is evangelistic. The book of John is the only, the Gospel of John is the only book of the Bible whose stated purpose, explicitly written, explicitly stated, is evangelistic. And it was written 50 years after the church age started. It was written after 1 Corinthians 15. So, somebody tries to tell you you can't use John to give the gospel John 20 31 says you can <laughs> okay if they say you have to use 1 Corinthians 15 say well okay you know alright I don't answer to you you won't be sitting on the beam when I get there I'm gonna I'm gonna serve the Lord 
All right. Any questions on that? All right. Well, this wraps up episode seven, episode eight. So uh, we'll move on next week. Episode nine. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you for the opportunity we have. And I pray that each one of us, Father, might be mindful of the opportunities we have to proclaim Christ, to look upon this fi- uh, these fields and see that they're white for the harvest. Father, to uh, make use of the Gospel of John and the, the signs of this book, the uh, I am messages of this book, the uh, revelation of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Father, might we be faithful witnesses and testimonies. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.